Hopefully you're in Jude now. If you're if if you're like me, I'm sure I'm sure you're familiar with these words. How many times do I have to tell you dot dot dot? It's all the, it's all the parents and people who work with small children who are snickering right now. And if you're not one of those people, you were a young person once and you heard that, so you should be familiar with that phrase as well. Well, today I feel like I'm going to be telling you something you should already know, but I'm not coming to you in, in an exasperated sort of how many times do we have to rehash this. This is a joyous thing to come to come in front of you and to say how many times can we keep retelling the same amazing story. See, I'm, I'm not going to say much different from the wonderful gospel presentation we had last week or the week before that or the week before that, particularly thinking about last week being Easter, Pastor Paul preaching through uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and that wonderful, concise description of what the gospel message is. We're going to look at the same sort of thing. And I, and I don't mean that Paul gave me his notes and we're going to be like reading verbatim through the same sort of thing. I mean that we're once again looking at the beauty of the gospel message and the joyous hope that it has for us today and the day after that and the day after that. And I bring this up because I, I worry that at times we all be, let ourselves become too familiar with the message of the gospel. And we need to guard against simply glossing over the the gospel message believing that we know it well enough that we don't need to we don't need to worry about that anymore this is the greatest message that has ever been heard of course we need to keep retelling it remembering it why would we not it's like a great novel that you read once and you're like oh i can't wait to read that again because that story is so wonderful you take that and multiply it infinitely greater think about the the ramifications of the gospel message perhaps you've heard the analogy that the gospel's not like a starting point of a line that continues in a certain direction that's meant to uh, describe your your redemption story it's not that rather it's it's more like the axle in the center of a bicycle wheel we have all these spokes that are connected to it. Really, what that thing is holding everything together right in the center. Everything is connected to it and revolves around it. That's what the, the message of the gospel is. We never move on from the gospel. It's always a wonderful thing for us to remember and proclaim. That's why we gather every Sunday. We're gathering every single Sunday to remember and proclaim the glories of the gospel that Christ died, was buried and, and rose from the dead. And by his death, we have new life. It's, it's, a, it's a joyous thing to remember. And today we get to retell that glorious story of the gospel. And we will do that by looking at just the very beginning of the book of Jude. Now Jude wrote this letter to believers who were shaken in their faith by false teachers. We don't have a whole lot of context for this. There, there's a lot of commentators that say that the, this book is always connected with, with Second Peter because they're talking about a lot of the same things. Second Peter, Peter is warning of something that is about to come. And Jude is almost saying, like, it's, it's come. You, this is what Peter was warning you about. And it's, it's come. It's already here. Now here's what we need to do to defend the true faith against all these false gospels. And he says in, in the beginning of this letter, in verse, verse 3, that he wanted to write a longer letter about the gospel, about what, what he calls our common salvation. But he put aside the long letter that he wanted to write in place of the shorter letter that he knew he needed to write. Uh, this was more important at this time, and, and this, this was going to serve the church better. So that's why he wrote this book. And he uses remarkably eloquent language throughout this entire letter, particularly when he describes the insanity and wickedness of 
of the false teachers and what they are promoting. But even before he addresses the false teachers and their their false doctrines, in these first two verses in his greeting, Jude lays a foundation of faith in, in just the way that he describes believers, how he describes himself. So we're just going to look at verses 1 and 2 of the book of Jude today. Let me read that. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So that's that, that's what we're looking at today. It's just those two verses. We're really going to hone in on the second half of verse 1 today, really. So Jude starts off with a bit of a humble description of himself. He calls himself servant, or that, that word is, is also translated slave of Christ and a brother of James. And, and we look at this and we think, well, he's actually kind of, in, in this description of himself, he's selling himself a little bit short. Because that brother James that he has is the James who is the leader in the Jerusalem church who is the half-brother of Jesus. So by extension, Jude is, is one of the half-brothers of Jesus as well. But he doesn't, he, he doesn't take time to, to say that. And he just focuses on the fact that he is a servant or a slave of Christ. There's a couple of reasons why he probably does that. And the first being that he's showing that, that he has no special credentials to talk to these people just because of who he's related to. We all come to faith in Christ the same way. We've all trusted in the same gospel message, no matter who we were related to. And that, that goes for Jude as well. Uh, Jesus' whole family was confused by Jesus' ministry for a long time and opposed it. Uh, and, and yet, not long after his, his death and resurrection, there was, as far as we can tell, James at least had some sort of experience with the risen Christ. And it, that may have been the same with, with the rest of Jesus's, uh, family, or it might have just been James, and that led to the entire family coming to faith in Christ and joining the disciples. But regardless, he's, he's come, he's turned around from what he originally thought of his, of his half-brother, and has trusted in him, and now is his servant. So he's talk, he's talking to them as a fellow servant of Christ, not because of any special relationship that he has with Jesus. And yet, in some ways, he is also using this term servant of Christ as sort of credentials because he's showing that the, the authority he has to speak to these believers comes from Christ. He is just the messenger or the emissary for Christ. That He's just bringing the same message that Christ would be giving them if he were still on on earth. That's so that that's why we we see this description of himself where he kind of is a little bit more humble in in the way that he describes himself as just a servant of Christ, brother of James. And he moves from this humble description of himself to a humbling description of Christians, of believers. This passage is kind of a unique take on the customary greeting is found in a lot of uh, letters, particularly what we see in, in the New Testament, but in letters that were written during this time, right around the time of Christ. Usually it, it was like the, the person who was writing the letter and would give some titles to describe who they are, and then they would describe who they're writing to, and all this stuff, and then just with a customary greetings at the end. And yet Jude takes that and... Like I said, there's a lot of eloquent and elaborate language in here. So he gives this kind of humble description of himself, and then he goes on to describe the people that he's writing to in this elaborate sort of way. He uses really expressive language as he describes and addresses his audience. And this is intentional. Jude chose 
his words carefully because he was laying a foundation of faith. He knew that he would be writing this letter to combat false teachings that had crept into the church. And so he wanted to make sure that we were all on the same page about who we are in Christ. So he uses these three specific phrases to express the wonder of the gospel. So that's what we're going to look at. That's going to be our outline this morning is these three specific phrases that express the wonder of the gospel. The first being that we are called by God. Called by God. So this is referring to the fact that Jude calls his audience those who are called. This was a, a pretty standard way of describing believers within the New Testament. A couple examples would be Romans 1, where Paul calls the church in Rome those who are loved by God and called to be his saints. And he uses that same sort of language that in the, the next book in, in our Bibles in 1 Corinthians, where he uh, says that the church in Corinth is called to be saints. So even though Jude is writing to a very general audience, there's never any uh, specific geography given or any city names in this. He is writing as kind of a general rule to the to to all all believers basically. Yet he is talking about a very specific kind of call, the same sort of call that Paul talks about in those in those other two greetings that I talked about. The, the fact that he's called to be, the, that they're called to be saints. It's a very specific kind of call with a very specific purpose and, in, and a specific goal in mind. This call is the call of the gospel. The, these are people who have heard the message of the gospel and the Holy Spirit has worked in their hearts so that they understand and have come to faith in Christ. Just as Paul described, they're saints. They have been set apart by God for His service. They're followers of Christ. That is what is meant here by the fact that, that Jude says that, the, that he's writing to those who are called. Now each of us, if you've come to, to faith and trust in Jesus, each of us has received this same specific call by God in the gospel. You may remember the specific moment when you were saved, when, when it, the gospel message finally clicked for you and you trusted in Christ and repented of your sins. Or it might be that you don't remember any specific time, but you do recognize a gradual shift where you, you, saw, you started to come to understand the gospel and trust in it, even though, even though you can't remember a specific time, you remember the general period when it happened. Well, whether or not you remember the actual event, or if you just remember the, the specific time, this should be a sweet memory for you. Because again, this is the most important message, the most important thing we could ever focus on in our lives. And that is the moment when you first came to understand it. The first time that it, that it made sense why God required this punishment for sin and why He sent His Son to pay that penalty. A miracle has happened in each of our lives in the fact that we have come to understanding and we have been raised to new spiritual life. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. He says you were living according to the powers of this world, enslaved to your own passions, governed by the prince of the power of the air. That was our, that, that was our situation before Christ, before we understood the gospel. And now God has made you alive in Him. Ephesians 2 again, verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Amen. That's the joy of 
the gospel. That, that is what we've been called to. That is the wonder of the gospel call. That, it, that is a miracle. We've been brought to new life. I'm grateful to know that, I'm grateful that I do know the specific date that I was saved. It was easy to remember. It was Christmas evening when I was five years old. Uh, this, this is not original to me. I'm sure plenty of you have heard this, but I love to, to borrow the phrase that the Lord saved me from a life of sex, drugs, and crime at the age of five years old. <laughs> Now it's it's it sounds funny. It's meant to sound funny, but think about that for a second. I'm so grateful that the Lord chose to save me at such a young age, and He kept me from what could have been indiscriminate sinful life up to when, whenever He chose to to save me. And you know, for for a long time, and, and any of you who were saved at a young age, you might feel this way too. For a long time, it felt as though my testimony seemed boring like i i didn't have any sort of dramatic come to jesus moment where i was in the in the middle of some terrible sin realized what i was doing and and turned and trusted in christ i was sitting in my dad's bedroom it wasn't anything special like like that um at least that's not what what i what i thought at the time because it just seemed so anticlimactic compared to what you think of is like dramatic stories, particularly thanks to movies and and and, and other sorts of stories. Uh, I'm sure a lot of you have that same sort of feeling where it's just kind of this this boring sort of testimony, not really all that much. I I was I, I was convicted of my sin of drawing with marker on the wall, and you know something like that. <laughs> now, when when I was in college. Uh, I was part of choir shock <laughs> and and what, while we were in choir uh, during during the course of the school year, uh, all the students would share their testimonies at, at different points during rehearsals. This is a way for us to to get to know one another a little bit better through that we were able to to sing better because we knew each other so much better, but also it was just a great time to rejoice in hearing how the Lord had saved each person in our our choir. And I remember that that a lot of us did feel awkward at those times telling our our, our testimonies because it, it felt boring in that way. Uh, but I had a good friend who had, well, not a boring testimony. Uh, and I told this friend once that in comparison, I felt like my testimony was weak and thin and, and and boring and she she turned to me looked me dead in the eyes and said i wish i had a boring testimony like yours i would so much rather have something like that Amen. as as my testimony of how the lord saved me that i wouldn't have had to endure all the things that i did and just put things in in perspective for me at that moment and, and, you know, like we saw in Ephesians 2, every person who has trusted in Christ is a walking miracle. There are no boring testimonies. Because it's, it, every single one of them is a miracle. We have been raised to new life. You are where you are today because God stopped you dead in your tracks made you understand the depth of your sin and enlightened your eyes to see the lengths to which He went to achieve new spiritual life for you. There's nothing boring about that. There's, there's, there's nothing unordinary about that. That is miraculous. Talk about a humbling description of believers to think just just of that of what what God has done to call us to himself. And again, this this is all of God. This is all his doing. What do we have in our faith that was not given directly to us? The only way any of us could have trusted in Christ 
is, is that we were called by God to believe in this salvific work. Turn your Bibles real quick to Romans chapter 10. Romans 10. We're going to look at verses 12 through 15 here. This is part of the message of salvation going out to all the world. Paul says here, starting in verse 12, he says, There is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pause right there. Now this is interesting. We were just talking about how in Jude, believers are those who are called by God. And yet here in Romans 10, Paul says that believers are those who have called on the name of the Lord. Well, which is it? Yes. Both. It is both. We'll see that as we continue moving along in this passage. Verse 14. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? So yeah, those who have called on the name of the Lord have only called on Him because He called them first. Christians are those who have heard the call of God in the gospel that was preached by someone or they read it in, in their, in their Bibles. And the Spirit enlivens that person so that he or she is able to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Divine action preceded human decision. That really, I've said, I've already said this, that should humble us greatly. And more than that, it should cause us to marvel all the more at, at what God did for us in calling us to Himself when He had no reason to do that. We're dead. Dead in our trans- transgressions and sins. There's nothing good within us. And yet He chose us and called us to Himself. But wait, there's more. Yeah, I feel like a telemarketer. But we're only getting started. This is only point number one. We've got two more to go. Because not only are we called by God, and that would be, that would be enough to, to rejoice in Christ. But not only that, we are beloved in God. Those whom God has called, He loves. Now let me remind you, this is not some level of affection or some sort of lovey-dovey feeling that God had for us. This was active and unconditional. God acted in love to call us and draw us to Himself. Let me read. You don't have to turn to to these passages. I'm going to go through a few really quickly. Let me read these passages just to see the extent to which God showed His love. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So here we see that this divine choice of love and choosing us to to come to faith in Him, that has been in place since before there was time. Before the foundation of the world, He had determined who He would draw to himself and he chose us in love. Another passage, Romans 5. Romans 5, 6 through 8. This is a familiar passage for us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, although perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just look at the lengths to which God was willing to extend His grace. We were His enemies. Dead in our transgressions, we, we were in full opposition to God. And yet, He still turned to us in love and called us to Himself through the sacrifice of Christ. It's remarkable. One last, one last passage, and we'll get back to, to Jude here. This is 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. For to this you have been called, there's that word again, called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here we see God's active steps in love that He took to call His people to Himself. And that, and that's part of why we're looking at this, this point as beloved in God. Not just, it's obviously in, in Jude 1, uh, it says beloved in God the Father. We look at that and think, well that sounds weird. We don't normally think of being loved in another person. Uh, we usually think of it as being loved by a, a specific person. And that that is implied within this, especially by the fact that we are called by God. He called us by His love for us. But, but the love that God has acted upon us is a love that has drawn us to Himself. And if we think if we think back to, to Romans 5, look at the beginning of, of that chapter where Paul says that since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We, like I said, we were enemies of Him in our sin and yet He has reconciled us to Himself. He has restored the relationship that we had back in the Garden of Eden. He has restored that with us so that we may dwell in His love. He is our refuge, our fortress, our strong salvation, to use some imagery from, from the Psalms. But it's, it's more than just the fact that we are now like drawn into His love as if it's a, a fortress that we are part of. It's, it's far more than that. It's far more amazing than that. Think, think about this with 1 John 3. Verse 1, the first half of that. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called what? Children, sons of God, children of God. I'm reading this out of the ESV that says what kind of love. It does kind of a disservice to to the Greek here. The, The better translation would be to say, see how great is the love that God has shown for us that we should be called children of God. How, how great, how marvelous that He would draw us not just into a peaceful relationship as with, as with like two warring factions. Think about like if, if we were to have peace talks that, that actually got somewhere between Russia and Ukraine. The, the kind of peace that would happen between those two nations is not the same thing as what we're looking at here in Scripture because God has not just come to peace with us. We're not, at, we're not just that we're at peace with Him in that sort of way. We're part of His family. He has adopted us into His family as sons and daughters. 
That's the beauty of this. And this is a present reality that will continue no matter what. We see that even more in Jude in the, the words that are, that are used when he says it, that we are beloved in God the Father. Uh, to get a little bit uh, nerdy Greek with you here, uh, this word that is translated beloved is a perfect participle. So it's something that has been completed. The, the act is, has been done. The work is finished in the past. And it still has implications in the present and in the future. We constantly reside in the love of the Father as His children. And we will reside there forever. That is the beauty of the Gospel. And remember, we brought nothing to this. Again, this is all an act of God. The, all that we brought to the table was the sin that made our salvation necessary. Right? The only thing that we contributed is the fact that, that because of our sin, God, God put in, in motion this plan of redemption and salvation. Have you ever stopped to think about the implications of that though, the fact that, that God allowed the fall of, of man and, and allowed us to, to get caught up in sin so that He might show His plan of salvation for us. Uh, there's a, there's a uh, line that's been part of the church for, for centuries, um, well known within, within Latin, but in, in English it's translated, oh, happy fault, or oh, fortunate fall, that gained for us so great a redeemer. And it's looking at, looking at the fact that the fall of man was actually to, to our advantage to some degree because it allowed us to, to see to a greater extent the love of our God. If it hadn't been for the fact that God allowed sin to enter the world, we might not have been able to fully grasp the extent of God's love for us. If, if we never, if we were sheep, if, if, if just say that we're like a, a flock of sheep and we never left the, the sheepfold, we never went out and did anything, we just resided there for, for all of our lives. I mean, it would be great and we would probably have a good relationship with our shepherd. But, we would not have fully understood just how beautiful and how loving the voice of our shepherd is in the fact that he's willing to go to such lengths to save his sheep from from danger. Because sheep are stupid. They need help with, um, they, they, with basic things, with being guided around. And how how marvelous to see that that picture of Christ as the good shepherd giving of himself for the sake of his sheep, even when we act in utter stupidity and utter sin. Now, this is not to say that it's that it's all good that we sin. And it's not to say that we have now carte blanche to, to sin as much as we want. Paul addresses that in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, if, if sin is... What God used to show His grace to us. Why can't, if, if there's more sin, there's more grace, right? Paul says, of course not. May it never be. That's the very fallacy that Jude's audience is, is hearing from the false teachers. So we'll get into more of that as we continue studying through this, this letter. But it, before I get ahead of myself with that, I'll just say this to, to close out this point. Knowing the extent to which God has loved us and understanding all of that, where do you think our eyes ought to turn? If we're, if we're thinking about this in the sense of, well, God has saved me and, and now I, I'm free from sin so I should just be able to do whatever I want, that's a very self-focused way of looking at things rather than focusing on the one who has saved us 
and what He has called us to do. I'm not thinking about what I can get for myself because of what Christ has done for me. I already have all I need in what Christ has given in that new life. I'm in awe that God would do as much as He has for me. And I want to respond to that not by trying to get more for, for myself, but to, to lift His name higher. That should be our focus. That should be our driving force because of what God has, has done for us. Thinking about the extent to which God has shown His love for us, how could we not respond in kind? I don't, I don't have much. I'm just a sinner like the rest of you who's recognized his need for a Savior. But what I have, I want to give over fully to the service of Christ, making him known above all else. But wait, there's more. As if it weren't enough that God has chosen us, that he has called us, that he has loved us unconditionally and made us his children We are also kept for Christ. Kept for Christ. So those whom God calls, He loves. And those whom He calls and loves, He also keeps. So we've already seen in the first two points just how helpless we were before God called us with the Gospel. How He has worked in His love to draw us to Himself. What makes us think that we can do anything to to further our spiritual life or further our spiritual maturity on our own? You know, Jesus Himself prayed for His followers throughout all of time and He asked the Father that, that the Father would keep those believers secure until His return. Let's, let's turn there quick. We've got time. Things... Pastors have never said from this pulpit. We've got time. <laughs> I joke, I joke. It's just because John's not here that I can say that. We'll edit that out. <laughs> oh gosh, let's rein this. Let's rein this in. John seventeen. I hope you're hope you turn there. Starting in verse nine. So this is part of Jesus' high priestly prayer right before he is betrayed and handed over to the Pharisees. So start in verse 9, where Jesus is praying to the Father. He says this, I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is Jesus' prayer for His followers, for His disciples. Uh, We could could go on in the the next verse where, where He talks about how He's not just asking for these things for the 11 who are in the room with Him, but He is talking about all who would come to trust in Him. So this, this prayer is, is given for us and God is faithful in keeping us in the faith. And He, He is even strengthening us 
by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us so that we may grow in our faith, that we may be sanctified as Jesus prayed in that, in that high priestly prayer. We are sanctified in the truth of His Word. And we shouldn't be surprised when we think about the fact that God is the one who strengthens us, the one who sustains us, who keeps us in this life, and, and who strengthens us to remain in the faith. I, I hope you're not surprised by that at this point, after all that we've looked at all, already just in this, this half a verse in the, in the book of Jude. God has done everything else in the process of our justification and our salvation. Why do we think that we can take on our sanctification all on our own? Uh, Galatians chapter 3 is a great example of this where Paul is, is a little bit exasperated with the church in Galatia. Uh, Galatians 3, 1 through 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's, he, he's showing them the foolishness of what they're doing because the Galatians had gone back into the sort of Judaizing sort of role where they, they were expecting certain actions from people before they would say that they're saved, which is, which is antithetical to what the gospel says, that there's nothing that we can do except trust in the work that's been done by Christ. Now, Philippians 1.6 is a great uh, short passage that, uh, that reminds us of this. Philippians 1.6 says that, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So we're being kept for the day when Christ will return. And God God is strengthening us. He is sustaining us. He is keeping us in the faith. He is the one who started the work in us by calling us through the gospel, by His love and expressing that love and giving this new life to us. And He is faithful to complete that work for each of us. And this is not to say that we just, you know, sit back and let God do what He wants in, in, in our lives. It's not, it's not a sort of antinomian let go and let God sort of thing. God is working in us to call us to action. Uh, another, another passage out of Philippians, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where, where Paul says, um, oh, I had it, I had it, and then I forgot it. I'll just look it up. Easy, be, better to read it than accidentally misquote it. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul tells them that, that they need to work out their salvation, but addresses that in the, in, in the fact that it is God who is doing the work in you. You are working, but God is working within you to accomplish that. We'll see in, in late, later on in the, the book of Jude that Jude calls his readers to keep themselves in the love of God, but he does that because he, he knows that, that they will remember what he has said at the beginning here, that they're kept by God for for Christ until the day that Christ returns. So it's almost an idea of like stay kept. He's encouraging them to stay kept in the love of of the Father. But we'll we'll get to that at some point. Now if there was no need for us to grow as believers, then each of us would have been Zap brought brought into the presence of God the moment that we trusted in in Christ, but clearly we, there's there's work to be done in us, both sanctifying us and there's work that we are called to do out in the world to proclaim this same message. We're still here because God is God is the one who has given us this work to do. The work to declare 
the most wonderful message that the world has ever known wherever we go. One last passage I want to read. This is 2 Timothy 1. 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 12. This is likely one of the, the last letters that Paul wrote, and he's writing to Timothy. And he says in chapter 1, verse 8, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If you look at the ministry of Paul, he feared for his life many times in his missionary journeys, whether it was riots that were that were coming his way or um, traveling in, in a storm, things like that. There were there were plenty of times where his life was at risk, and and even though he may have feared for his life, it never stopped him from preaching the gospel. He was unashamed and unafraid, and that same mind, we we ought to have that that same mindset. One modern theologian has described that mindset in this way. I love I love this quote. He says, "We are immortal until our work is done." Now think about that. That that's a that's a fascinating idea that to to think that we are immortal meaning that nothing will happen to us that will threaten that, that will seriously threaten our lives. Until the day that our work is done, that God, God says, that, that, that's it, and He calls us home. Talk about job security. God is the one who is keeping us for the, for this work. He is, He's keeping us in the faith and He is keeping us even on this earth to complete the work that He has for us. We have nothing to fear. You know, when we think about sharing this wonderful message of the gospel, a lot of us get basically just freeze up when we when we think about the the idea of sharing the gospel with with someone else. All all the what ifs of like what what if I get it wrong? Or what what if he what if he says no? Or all these different things. We have nothing to fear in that. If we have trusted in Christ, then, then we understand the magnitude, the majesty, the glory of this message. It should, it, it should be hard for us to contain ourselves from declaring the joy of the gospel of Christ. And whether we're blessed enough to be alive and see Christ's return, or if God calls us home by by death, uh, before that day, we can still rest secure in the fact that he, that God has called us, that He has loved us, and He is keeping us in life and in death for the sake of Christ. Well, that's the first two verses of Jude. <laughs> that's the foundation. Of the gospel of grace. Who would have thought in just a short greeting we would see the full breadth and length and height and depth of the glory of the gospel of God. Let's, let's keep this in mind as we go into our, our, our weeks. Let's bear this in mind again the, the next time that we get to, to study this passage. And when, when we do take time to study this book 
again. We can be firmly planted in this, this foundation, this bedrock of our faith, this joyous message in thinking through defending that joyous message against false teachers. Let's pray. Father, what grace You have shown to us. Even as we sang this morning, God, what gift of grace that You have given us, Christ, as a Redeemer and a Savior for us. That there's nothing else that we need. You've given us all that we could ever hope for in that one wonderful gift of grace. And calling us to Yourself through through that grace and that love, revealing to us the the wonder of Your Gospel and the the lengths to which You you express Your love for us and how You will keep us to the end. Father, I pray that You would strengthen us in our faith. That we would be even bolder witnesses of Your Gospel. Father, if there are any who do not know You who are sitting in here, pray that this morning they will have seen a taste of the glory of the Gospel message and what You've done for Your children. The love that You've poured out for us. What a a marvelous thing, God. I pray that we would never gloss over that message. That we would never just think of it as something that happened in the past we understand what happened and now we move on to the next part of our lives father keep us centered on the gospel that it may orient our lives and shape the things that we say and do because we know whom we have believed we know who has called us we know that you have loved us by sending your son for us We thank You for that, God. We we thank You for Your grace to us in being able to study this passage together this morning. Father, keep this in our minds. Keep us fixed on You, we pray. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. And may Your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.